Good morning, brothers and sisters. Happy Independence Day and happy Resurrection Sunday. We gather here not to celebrate the birth of the United States of America. I see a lot of patriotic representation here. Very good. But we're here to celebrate the triumphant resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ is our allegiance and our highest priority. This Sunday and every Sunday we come together as the church. And nothing shows that Woodside Community Church understands this priority of, uh, of Christ, the supremacy of Christ over all things, more than putting a resident alien in the pulpit on July 4th. So, good job, Woodside Community Church. Holidays often mean that uh, a lot of people are on vacation uh, for a weekend, so I'm especially delighted and encouraged to see you here this morning. I earnestly hope and pray that you will be well-fed this morning by the word of God. And with that said, I pray for us, and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, the church is the household that belongs to you. So teach us how to be your people, a family of God, a pillar and buttress of your truth. I pray that you will show us and teach us what it means to be the guardians of our own souls and of the church. I pray that uh, you will give us wisdom and understanding, give us strength and direction that we may guard our souls against, um, against heresies, guard our lives with our godliness, and guard our church through our pastors, we pray. Amen. All right, so what comes to mind when you think of the Protestant, the key moments of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago? Well, some of you would remember Luther nailing his 95 theses on the doors of the churches in Wittenberg. Maybe Luther's words at the Diet of Worms still echo in our hearts to this day. Here I stand, I cannot do Otherwise, maybe it is the martyrs and, the, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the, the people who gave their lives for the Reformation that affect your soul the most. William Tyndale was strangled and burned for heresy and his Bible translation. John Rogers was burned at the stake for preaching the Bible. The Anabaptists were drowned for their insistence on the believer's baptism. And these are memorable and legendary moments of the Reformation we still savor and relish to this day. But here is a moment that you may not know. It is a quiet and insignificant moment in church history. On January 1st, 1519, the Swiss reformer Jurek Zwingli entered the pulpit and shocked the congregation with the announcement that he would not preach the prepackaged sermons from the Roman Catholic church traditions, but instead he will preach through, straight through the gospel according to Matthew. And that marks the recovery of expository preaching in the church, to which we as a church still commit ourselves to this very day. And he preached the gospel according to Matthew. Well, that's understandable, right? After all, it is a gospel book, and that gives us a closer examination of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was next? Well, he preached through the Acts of the Apostles. And again, that's understandable. Acts is all about the apostolic mission of, of preaching the gospel and the founding of the church. So at the time of the reformation of the church, uh, that is a very fitting and appropriate book to, to preach through. And then what's next? Right? You would think he's going to preach through the book of Romans or uh, the, the clearest and most systematic presentation of the gospel or the book of Ephesians, which is a shorter version of the book of Romans or Galatians to, to combat against the work-based salvation heresy 
by which the church was imminently threatened and endangered at that time. But no, he preached, you guessed it, he preached through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Why? 1 Timothy is one of the three letters of Paul commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. It was written to Timothy primarily as as an instruction manual on how to be a pastor. Now, that begs the question, why is 1 Timothy so important that Zwingli would preach it to his church, where most people did not aspire to be pastors or elders of the local church? And there lies the greatest difficulty of preaching through this epistle, because I know most of you do not aspire to be pastors. Why did we decide on this epistle to preach through this summer? Right? This is a local church, not a pastor's conference. Is 1 Timothy relevant to you at all? Well, the answer is, well, I hope the answer is yes, or otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. The answer is yes, because we saw last week in the thesis statement of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Sure, 1 Timothy is Paul's guidance to the young Timothy on pastoral ministry, but more importantly, it's about how the church must stand as an instrument of truth and holiness. It's about all of us, what we ought to believe and how we ought to live in light of that belief. And that is precisely what we're going to look at today from our text. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the entire chapter, which you can find on page 992 of the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 16. Let me read the text for you. Please pay close attention to every verse because this is the word of God. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of, is of some value, God, uh, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach that, uh, these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. In the first sermon of our、uh, series on First Timothy, we said the theme of the entire epistle is belief and behavior befitting the household of God, or sound doctrine and godly life in the church. By the end of the sermon series, I hope the three things in this theme will be deeply impressed upon your minds and your hearts. So there is belief or sound doctrine, and then there is there is a life behavior or godly life, and lastly there is the household of God or the church. So these remember these three things: doctrine, life, and church. Because we need to cover an entire chapter this morning, I cannot point out every noteworthy detail from the text. But one point, there's one point I want to make this morning, and it's very, very simple. Brothers and sisters, you, as members of Woodside Community Church, you are called to be the guardians of yourselves and your church. You are called to be the guardians of yourselves and the church. That's the point. How do we do that? Three ways. Three ways for for you from the text. First, you are called to guard your mind against heresies. And secondly, you are called to guard your life with godliness. And lastly, you are called to guard this church through your pastor. So guard your mind against heresies. That is belief. Guard your life with godliness. That is your life. Guard your church through pastors. That is your church. So let's begin with point number one. Guard your mind against heresies. Heresies. Or false teachings are anything that is explicitly against the teaching of the scriptures, and a belief of which calls to question the salvation of the one who believes in it. Heresy has a very long history. It is as old as Genesis three, when the serpent and the devil approached our first parents and uttered the first heresy in human history: "You shall not surely die." And since then, a great variety of heresies. Has been plaguing humankind through, throughout history. In the Old Testament, there was the heresy of polytheism and syncretism. It is the golden calf that saved you and led you out of Egypt. And behold, that is your god. That's polytheism, syncretism. That's the heresy of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there was the heresy of legalism, a work-based salvation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential, but we also need to return to the law. We need to return to circumcision, to our own works, and there are also lesser heresies in the New Testament as well. Some claimed that the resurrection has taken place. Well, in Second Timothy chapter two, some taught Christians need not work any longer because Jesus is returning very soon. In First and Second Thessalonians, we'll see in in today's text just in a moment. Some forbid marriage and the consumption of certain foods. However. You will be greatly mistaken if you think heresy has ceased since the time of the of the Bible. And the first four centuries of church history, in some sense, could be very well summarized by the church fighting against all kinds of heresies, especially heresies regarding the Trinity and the deity and the humanity of Christ. There was modalism; God is one person in three different modes. And sometimes he reveals himself to us as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. And there was Arianism; the Son is not God, but a mere creature. And there was Docetism; Christ is not truly human; he only appeared 
to be so. There was Eutychianism. Christ is neither divine nor human. He is a hybrid of both. And there, there was Nestorianism. Christ Jesus is not one person, but two persons, one divine, divine person and one human person separately. And there was adoptionism. Jesus is not the son of God by nature, but by adoption. There, there's so many more. But you get my point, right? Heresies are a chronic disease that not only plagues the unbelieving world, but also the church as well. So brothers and sisters, you and I are called to guard our minds against these heresies. If our minds are like flowers or plants, then we're not the ones in a greenhouse with controlled temperature freed from all perils. Not at all. We are the ones in the field exposed to the heat of the summer and the chill of the winter. So like the Apostle Paul wrote, we must stand strong against every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. We are the guardians of our own minds against every heresy coming our way. Now, Paul is probably, probably the best heresy buster in the history of the church. So let's learn from the, from the expert. What can we know about heresies from our text? What are some prominent features and characteristics of heresies? Let's make a few observations from the text. Observation number one, heresies have been foreseen by God. Heresies have been foreseen by God. Verse one, look at verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. In other words, the existence, the spread, and the popularity of heresies and falsehood is not only completely unsurprising to God, he even explicitly warned us about it through his Spirit and his Spirit-inspired word. Our loving Heavenly Father did not hide them from us. He made it the highest priority to make aware and alert to the existence of heresies to us through the revelation of his word. Where do we find? Where do we find heresies in the scriptures? Where do we find them? We find them in the narratives where men were led astray and voluntarily plunged themselves into lies. We find them in the words of our Lord Jesus and the apostles clearly stating the lies people believed. We find them in the apostles' plain warnings against heresies, such as Acts chapter 20, verse 30. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Again, 2 Timothy 4.3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. And we have the text this morning, we just read, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of the demons. The, the Lord our God loves us, the church. He saw the great danger and threat posed by heresies. And so he is warning us to guard our minds carefully against heresies. Observation number two, heresies are the chief cause of apostasy. Heresies are the chief cause of apostasy. Again, verse one, look at verse one. In later times, some will depart from the faith. False conversion, apostasy, is the greatest tragedy on earth. Nothing is so grave, nothing is so severe, nothing is so weighty as departing 
from the faith, coming into the light only to return to darkness, having one foot set in heaven only to turn back to hell. Why does this spiritual tragedy happen? Keep reading in verse 1. In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Heresy and false teachings are the chief killer of men's spiritual life. And Paul knew it. Because Paul wrote about this throughout this epistle to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.4 Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Why? Because certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. They have departed from sound faith. Chapter 1, verse 19. We are called to hold faith and a good conscience. Why? Because by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And later in chapter 6, Paul will again uh, warn those who teach a different doctrine, imagining godliness is a, is a means of gain. And he says, it is through this craving, craving for riches, that some have wandered away from the faith. And then there's the last verse of 1 Timothy, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Why? For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Back to our text, the apostle could not issue a clear warning, a more genuine alert, an alarm to the, the believers. Some will depart from the faith. That's to say, some today, this very day, who profess faith will eventually deny it. I pray there will be none of us here today, but some will depart from the faith, and they depart because of heresies. Heresies are the chief cause of apostasy. Observation number three. Heresies are promulgated by liars and false teachers. Heresies are promulgated by liars and false teachers. Where do heresies come from? How do they spread so fast like wildfires? Verse two. Look at verse two. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They come from liars and false teachers. Second John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Second Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Do you want to know the most evident proof of false teachers going into the world, disseminating lies and heresies? Go to a bookstore. Go to the religion or Christianity section. And the proof is right in front of your eyes. The shelves are dominated by false teachers like Joe Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, and all the other televangelists. I know most of you know who they are and that they're false teachers, but on the off chance that you or someone you know listen to them, now I plead with you. I plead with you to listen to the Apostle Paul's words. This is the words of the Apostle. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. They spread fast, or they do not die, and they will eat you alive. 
They are the predators that lie in wait for their prey. They are like the adulterous woman in Proverbs, who stands in the street corner seducing, seducing men with her craftiness. Avoid them, turn away from them, and come to the truth. And notice, notice another detail from the text about these false teachers. Look at verse two again. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It does not say whose conscience whose conscience has vanished or whose conscience is obliterated. It says their consciences are seared. In other words, the false teachers they know exactly what they're doing. They know they're preaching heresies and leading people astray. They know they're destroying people's souls and deceiving the innocent and confused ones. They know that they're defiling the good name of true religion and our Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't care. Their conscience convicts them, but their conscience is seared, hardened, and suppressed. You know someone is very far gone when they don't even listen to their own consciences anymore. So let's be aware of these lurking false teachers and their false teachings spread among us. Observation number four: Heresies are usually very subtle. Heresies are usually very subtle. What is this heretical teaching? Right, Paul has used some really big and scary words to describe it: deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, insincerity of liars, consciences are seared. This must be a pretty serious heresy, right? Like denying the Trinity or the deity of Christ, or something like that, right? Verse three. Look at verse three. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. It's kind of anticlimactic, right? I was really hyped up and hoping for a big review of a big heresy, right? But it's a bit of a letdown. It's just just celibacy and dietary restriction. But I think that's precisely the point. Heresies are subtle. Heresies sound good. Heresies seem to make a lot of sense. Heresies are very attractive to the flesh. Heresies do not seem like a big deal. They're a mixture of some big truth. And just a little lie. It is a cup of water mixed with a few drops of lethal poison. It is a small infection that can destroy the entire body. Don't get me wrong. We of course still hear blatant heresies. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims deny the deity of Christ. Mormons deny almost every fundamental doctrine of the faith. Universalists and Pelagians deny the necessity of Christ for salvation. But these are not the only type. Of heresies we hear, right? The social justice warriors—they preach a social justice gospel. The false teachers I just listed earlier preach a gospel of prosperity, of wealth and health. The Marxists preach a gospel of equality through revolt and elimination of classes. The sexual revolutionaries preach a gospel of sexual liberation and autonomy. Heresies are nearer to us than we realize because they are very subtle and they're very unassuming. The devil can disguise as an angel of light, so his lies can also masquerade as the pure truth. So, brothers and sisters, I cannot emphasize this enough. You and I are in a close battle with heresies. The apostles has warned us clearly from the text. How then can we guard ourselves from heresies? Well, let me briefly mention three things from the text. Number one. Remedy number one: diligently search, study, and know the scriptures. This is Jesus' advice to the church, John eight thirty two. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
This is Paul's advice to young Timothy in verse 6 of our text. Look at verse 6. Timothy was trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And this is Paul's, Paul's advice to Titus concerning pastors. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's to say, if we want to stand firm against every wind of deceitful and heretical teaching, we must hold fast to sound doctrine, scriptural doctrine, tested and tried doctrine. And that's what Paul did in our text, right? Some people forbade marriage and required abstinence from food. How does Paul respond? Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Where do you see that in the Bible? Well, it's on page number 1, right? Genesis 1. And nothing is to be rejected if, we, if it is received with thanksgiving. Where do you see that in the Bible? Well, in Acts 10, there was Peter's vision, and also in Mark 7, Jesus declaring all foods clean. For every false teaching, there are many passages in the scriptures that guide us safely through into the truth. We only need to study, search, and know God's word diligently. I pray and urge you that you will do so daily and diligently. Number two, regularly sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word in the church. Regularly sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word in the church. Verse six, look at verse six again. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Don't forget, this epistle, Paul is writing to Timothy as a pastor of a particular local church, the Ephesian church. So in other words, verse 6 implies that there is a church gathering for the specific purpose of teaching and preaching. And there are people in the church, the elders, who are set apart for the specific purpose of teaching and preaching God's word. So a most important objective of our Sunday service right here, right now, is to preach the word so that you may be protected from the lies you may come in contact with for the rest of the week. The job of the pastor is to protect and guard the flock from wolves and liars by teaching and preaching God's word. That, in some sense, is the entirety of his job. And notice, notice the text says Timothy is, is trained. Right? In other words, pastors are trained. They're trained in sound doctrine just so that they may protect you. Right? So, so come to church. Come to Bible study, Sunday schools. I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I know you live far away. But you have an immortal soul to guard and a powerful enemy to fight against. Think on these things. Appreciate and participate in the teaching ministry of the church. Remedy number three. Train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Right. That's our objective. That's our goal. We want to have nothing to do with heretical teachings. How do we do that? Right. You might expect Paul to say, oh, study the word or come to church, like we just said. Paul did say these things earlier, but now in verse 7, he's pointing out something else. He surprises us with, with something else. Keep reading. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So how do we do that? Rather, train yourself for godliness. Godliness protects us from being led astray by heresies, which leads us to point number two. Guard your life with godliness. Guard your life with godliness. Verses seven and eight. Look at verses seven and eight. In these two verses, 
we find, first of all, the call to pursue godliness. The call to pursue godliness. Verse 7. Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So far, we have considered many great and important things uh, regarding the Christian life in this epistle. Warnings against heresies and the foundation of the gospel in chapter 1. The call to pray and the biblical role of men and women in chapter 2. Uh, the description and qualification of the offices in the church in chapter 3. But here, in these verses, is the first clear call for the Christian to pursue godliness. Everything we've talked about so far, from chapter 1 to 3, is meant to accomplish the single greatest purpose of the Christian life. Godliness. Godliness is the crowning jewel of, uh, and the glory of a Christian. You can be called a knowledgeable man, a wise man, a trustworthy man, a powerful man, but none of these is more honorable than being called a godly man. I would gladly exchange all my possessions, all my health, and my comfort for godliness, which I will not give away for all the world. Now, what is this godliness Paul is talking about? Paul deems so precious and valuable and essential for the Christian life. The Greek word for godliness is eusebia, which has two parts. The first part is eu, right, which means good or well, like in words like eulogy or euphemism. So that's good, well. The second part is sebomahi, which means to worship and adore. So you put these two things together, the word literally means to worship well. It means, it means fervor and piety. In other words, godliness is that which God produces in man by his powerful work such that the man becomes completely consumed by the worship and adoration of God in every way of his life. Puritan Thomas Watson defined godliness in this way. Godliness is the sacred impression and workmanship of God in a man, whereby from being carnal he is made spiritual. Uh, therefore, godliness is nothing other than the life and the spirit of God in the souls of men, right, which makes us more and more upright, fervent, reverent, and Christ-like. Now, pay attention to what Paul tells us to do. Right, verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. The Greek word for train here is gymnazel. Right? Do you recognize that word? That's where we get the word gymnasium. So this word literally means an athlete working out intensively or undergoes training with his full effort. That's why Paul followed up verse 7 with verse 8. Right? Train yourself for godliness. Well, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. That is the manner and the urgency in which we ought to pursue godliness. Some of you go to, go to the gym, and some of you go to the gym very diligently. And that is how we treat our bodies. How much more energy should we exert in gaining godliness for our souls? We should train ourselves for godliness as much as an athlete trains for the Olympic gold medal. You hear athletes say this, this cl cliche all the time during their post-game interviews. I, I left it all on the floor. I left it all on the floor. That's how we pursue godliness, giving everything we have for it. And that is Paul's call for us to pursue godliness. The question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to give up everything we have for godliness? 
verse 8. Look at verse 8. Godliness is of value in every way. Godliness is of value in every way. Why? As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul later would say, again, godliness with contentment is great gain. So what does godliness gain for us in this life? What does it gain for us? Godliness gains us God's favor in this life. And it allows us to enjoy communion with him in prayer. Psalm 4, verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Godliness will gain uh, some persecution in this life, but it will also gain for us God's protection and preservation through uh, the persecutions. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Our godliness gains for us communion with like-minded saints that we may encourage each other. Godliness gains for us good marriages. Godliness gains for us the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Godliness, indeed, is a great gain for us, for us, the people of God, for the body and the soul of, for our body and our souls in this life. What promise does godliness hold for the life to come? There's life here and there's life to come. What gain does godliness hold for the life to come? All right, the promise that the godly will gain eternal life. That's what the gain is, that we will gain eternal life. Psalm 149 verse 5, Let the godly exult in glory. Romans 6.22, Now that you have been set free from sin, I have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Godliness is a great gain because it leads us to eternal life. Thomas Watson, again, he wrote, Godliness is glory in the seed, and glory is godliness in the flower. So, what is the glory for the believer in eternity? Well, it's simply the continuity of the godliness we cultivate in this life. And that is how precious godliness is. It's absolutely worth pursuing for the good of our souls and our bodies here in this life and the life to come. Now, what is the basis or foundation for this pursuit? What motivates us, the Christian, most to pursue godliness? Verse 10. Look at verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive. We toil and strive for godliness, right? Why? Why do we, why do, we do that? Verse 10 again. Because we have our hope set upon the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. First of all, this verse by no means teach universal salvation. It's like saying Nicole is a teacher at the Roosevelt Island School, especially to the students in her English class. It does not mean that Nicole actually teaches every single student in the school, but she's willing and able to teach them if they're in her class. Right? In the same way, God is the savior of all men, but that doesn't mean that he actually saves all men. He saves his elect by his grace, though he is willing and able to save all men. And though this clause is has generated endless controversy. It is not really the point of this verse. The main point of this verse is we pursue godliness because we have been saved by the living God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. It's the same thing we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 16. Just look at chapter 3, verse 16. What does it say? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So where do we know and see this godliness? Right? Continue. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's to say, we see and we know the mystery of godliness by the salvific work of Christ Jesus. From the incarnation to his passion, his resurrection, his mission, and his ascension. The pursuit of godliness is not a meaningless or vain cause, precisely because in, this, in Christ's life, he has obtained every righteousness we need. In his death, he atoned for every sin we committed and suffered every judgment we deserve. And in his resurrection, he brought to us the hope of eternal life. We pursue godliness not to gain salvation, right? not to work God's saving grace. We pursue godliness not because we fear God's judgment and punishment. If we don't, then there are bad things will happen to us. We pursue godliness because we have been transformed from wretched men and women into, into saints. We used to love our sins. Now we're transformed into a holy people who love the Lord and righteousness. If you are apart from Christ Jesus this day, I do not call you to pursue godliness. My call for you is not godliness. You have no business with godliness. You must repent and come to the Lord Jesus and trust in his life, death, and resurrection for you. Delay no more. Come and rest in Christ Jesus for your eternal life. However, if you are in Christ this morning, my call to you is to look to Christ. Look to Christ by the Spirit through the word and let it drive you to godliness and holiness because second peter 1 3 says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so you have everything you need for godliness so consider christ's finished work for your souls and let us together strive for godliness and christ likeness and finally verse 9 just in case just in case you waver in the pursuit of godliness, when temptation rages on, when sin seems like it's not a big deal, so much more pleasant, when the ways of the world seem so much easier and the Christian life is so much more difficult, when godliness seems not worth it and ungodliness seems not that big of a deal, when you just want to wave your hands and give up, brothers and sisters, remember this verse, verse 9. Godliness is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We have seen the same words before. Remember in chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What was that saying? You remember? The saying is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the saying. That's to say, as sure as Christ came into the world to save sinners, so is the great value of godliness. If you sit here this morning and you wholeheartedly trust Christ's love and mercy onto the most undeserving sinners, of whom you and I are all the foremost, then Paul is telling you, you should be equally and wholeheartedly convinced that there is great worth in a holy life. 
Job 14, verse 1. Man, is born, uh, man who is born of women is few of days and full of trouble. Life is hard. Life is full of trouble. Some of us are dying. Some of us have sick family members. Some of us have difficult relationships at home, we're at work, we're at church. Wherever we are, whatever we're going through, let us not forget the preciousness of this great calling to guard our lives with godliness. It is always worth it. Point number three, guard your church through pastors. Guard your church through pastors. Our church is a congregational church, which means decisions, especially the most important decisions, are made by the church and all its members. And that's why this pastoral epistle is important. Uh, because as Paul teaches Timothy how a church should function, we're learning how we are to make these important decisions in our church life in a biblical and scriptural manner. Now, one of the most important decisions you and I can make as church members is the installation of pastors and elders. We are the guardians of the church, and we can guard our church by calling and installing pastors to protect the flock. So if that's the case, then we must know what to look for in a pastor. I know we have looked at it very formally in, in chapter 3 regarding the qualifications of the elders, but we can still learn much from Paul's charge to Timothy on how to be a pastor here in chapter 4. So, so let's begin. Let's begin with the negatives. What are some standards that we should not use when assessing our pastors? Verse 12. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. I promise you, is not an elaborate scheme on the church leadership's part to put a young man in the pulpit to preach on this verse. No, no conspiracy theory. Nicole earlier just said I look like an adult by dressing up. <laughs> That's not an elaborate scheme. Okay, not, no conspiracy theory. But, but Paul surely recognized uh, just the stigma against youth, even in the church. Right? Why is there a stigma in the church toward the youth or toward young people? Right? Every morning... When I wake up, uh, I, my alarm will go, go off, and I wake up to a song. It's called Wake Me Up. I'm surprised. The chorus of the song says, So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. All this time I was finding myself, and I didn't know I was lost. So it pretty much summarizes, summarizes our attitude toward young people. Right? They lack wisdom. They lack life experience, which are necessary and beneficial for pastoral ministry. They seem lost all the time at that stage of their lives. They need help and counsel more than uh, they can offer help and counsel. A lot of these assessments are generally true. Right? Joseph was young, and then he spoke some rash words that made his brothers jealous. Rehoboam listened to the counsel of the youth and destroyed the nation of Israel. The rich young man is not willing to give up his possessions to follow Jesus. Young people often seem less faithful and less fruitful in the church. But Paul here is saying, do not judge a book by its cover. Do not judge a man just by his age. Youthfulness should not be a deal breaker. As a church, we should also look for other characteristics of our pastoral candidates, which I'll talk about momentarily. But I want to generalize, generalize this mentality a little bit more. Paul says the church should not judge a pastor based on age, but I think the principle really applies more generally. We should not judge our pastors based on any preconceived 
bias, or any idealistic or romanticized view of what a pastor should be like. Right? When listing the qualification of a pastor, how many of us think this way? He needs to be married. He needs to be an eloquent speaker. He needs to work without ceasing. He needs to be available 24-7. He should never go on sabbatical. He needs to have a ton of experience pastoring churches. He needs to be a really smart guy and have advanced degrees. And sometimes I'm afraid that we're quick to shut our pastors down just because they don't fit our preconceived notion or our personal preferences or standard. No pastor is perfect. No man is perfect. What is important for a church to do is to look for value and love, what God values, looks for, and loves in our pastors. So what should we look for in our pastors? What are the qualities we should investigate to guard our church through our pastors? Let's look at the text. The pastoral search and assessment manual is right here. There are four things I want to point out according to verses 11 through 16 that we should pay attention to very quickly. Four things. Number one, his gifting. Number one, his gifting. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. That is the first question every church should ask when they look at a man in ministry. Is he gifted? Thomas Edison once said this, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% Perspiration. Perspiration means the sweat. So the saying is generally interpreted as genius is mostly about diligence. Right? But that is ignoring the 1% of inspiration part. A man is no genius if he only has perspiration but no inspiration. Sharon invited me to a crochet next Saturday. I am terrible at any crafting with my hands. These hands can only draw mathematical form, uh, graphs and write mathematical equations, nothing else. Very terrible. Right, I would try really hard to, to do whatever, but I'm sure I'm going to fail very, very miserably. Right, I, that's not my gifting. Gifting is absolutely important, especially when it comes to pastoral ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 1969 to deliver a series of lectures on pastor uh, preaching on preachers. In one of his lectures, he recounted this incident where a young scientist, he suddenly felt a call to become a pastor. And so he went to seminary, and he graduated, and he even got ordained. But it quickly became clear to him that he had no gifting in pastoral ministry. He sweated week after week over his sermons, and he had other works to do to visit church members and so on. He had three churches in seven years, and eventually came to the realization that he was not called to be a pastor or a preacher at all. So he went back to, to science, and then he became a well-known scientist. So the point is very simple. Gifting is the first test of a pastor. Now, what gifting are we looking for? Charisma, eloquence, intelligence, what are we looking for in the gifting? Number two, his teaching. Number two, his teaching. Just look at the text. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. What about his teaching? We just look at the great danger of a heresy. So a good pastor must defend biblical orthodoxy 
and commit himself to teaching sound doctrine in the scriptures. We judge the orthodoxy of the pastor's preaching by examining the scriptures ourselves, by comparing it to tested confessions of faith in church history, which is just my subtle way of endorsing our adoption of the 1689 Linden Baptist Confession this fall. All of us are guardians of the church, so it is the responsibility of all of us to make sure the teaching of our pastors and teachers are in full accord with the scriptures. Now, the teaching of our pastors that we pay attention to is mostly twofold, right? two things we look for, preaching and counseling, preaching and counseling. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Right? The pastor needs to know how to preach. He does not need to be an, a, a charismatic and eloquent speaker like George Whitfield. He does not need to be an intellectual giant like Jonathan Edwards, but he needs to be able to handle a scriptural text accurately and apply it fairly to the congregation with plain words. But preaching is not the only way of teaching. Back to verse 6 of the text. If you put these things before the brothers, so there is a sense in which our pastors put God's word before brothers in counseling, right? in house visits, in hospital visits, over emergency phone calls, and in small groups. The pastor must be gifted, gifted in teaching, teaching sound doctrine through preaching and counseling. That's number two. He must be gifted, gifted in teaching. Number three, his life, his life. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, Impurity. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself. The life of the pastor must be an example to his flock. In speech, that is, the words he speaks, are they full of wisdom and encouragement? In conduct, that is, the manner of his life and his dealing with others, are they characterized by holiness and care for his church members? In love, that is, the desires and the passions of his heart, does he love the Lord, the church, the people of God, the ministry, and the word. In faith, that is, his unconditional trust in the Lord. Does he weather the storm of this life with confidence and courage in Christ and fight the good fight even when he is beaten down? Impurity, that is, the sexual purity of his thoughts and actions. Are his sexual desires expressed properly according to the scriptures? A pastor could be young or old, seasoned or inexperienced, but his life must be characterized by ever-growing love, faith, and purity. Number four, last thing, his persistence. Number four, his persistence. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, persist in this. Ministry is a marathon, it's not a sprint. But sadly, we all know the most famous sprinter in the world but we can rarely even name a long-distance runner. And I truly hope and pray that our attitude toward our pastors is not like that. When our pastors come, they're signing up for a lifelong commitment. So we must be sure that they can persist in this race. And notice Paul's wording. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. In other words, what is important is not that our pastor is perfect, but he is progressing. Not that our pastor is matured, but he is maturing. 
Not that he is a finished product, but the divine chisel is still carving and crafting this man. And brothers and sisters, almost every pastor I know has thought of quitting at one point or another. It's not because they do not love their job or do not love us, the church, or or they don't want to persist. They just want to give up. No, it's because pastoral ministry is like nothing else. It demands the body, the mind, the intellect, and the soul. So remember to pray for your pastors. Reach out to your pastors. Let your pastors know that they are loved and they're treasured by you. So be gracious to them, even if you disagree with them, and encourage them even with those cheesy one-liners. Trust me, it really goes a very long way. This is our calling as church members, as members of the church, to guard our church through our pastors, to look for their gifting, gifting in teaching, and their life, and their progress, and their persistence. So brothers and sisters, you are the guardians of the church. Remember to guard your minds against heresies. Guard your life with your godliness, and guard this church through your pastors. Let's pray. Lord, what a high calling you have called us to, to be guardians of the church. What a great privilege, what a humbling advantage it is to us, men and women, that we may become children of God, we may become children in your household, to defend, to guard, to serve, and to love the church. I pray, Lord, that you continually cultivate in our, in our minds a desire to pursue biblical orthodoxy, to believe in what is right and true. Let that truth that you proclaim to us through your word set us free. And I pray that that word will empower us, motivate us, strengthen us to live uh, in light of, of your righteousness, to live and pursue godliness and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I pray for our pastors, O Lord, Strengthen them. You have given them a high calling to guard the church. I pray that us, the church, will understand it, see it, appreciate it, and love it. And I pray that we'll continually remember our pastors in our prayers. So love them, treasure them, support them, make it not a burden for them to care for our souls, but a great joy. I pray that you'll protect your church. This church belongs to you. Let not the gates of hell uh, swallow it or defeat it. Let this solid foundation of Christ Jesus support us as the pillar and the buttress of your truth, I pray. Amen.